Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On today's episode, Rabbi Simcha Weinstein joins me to discuss being a college rabbi, founding the Jewish Autism Network, and the connection of superheroes and marginalized people. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Rabbi Simcha, thanks so much for joining me today on here on Autism Stories. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I wanted to start off by uh, talking. You're the founder of the Jewish Autism Network. What was that the inspiration for you to behind that to start uh, your organization? The inspiration, I guess, was sort of desperation. Uh, that I was, uh, you know, uh, my second oldest child is on the autism spectrum. And I guess for many years I was, it's been an evolution. So I'll give you uh, briefly the evolution that I guess when he was younger, I was a little bit uh, of that dad in denial, like he'll grow out of it. And the doctors don't know what they're talking about. I still think that may be true about the doctors, by the way. And that when he was younger, we, you know, we were kind of in this Disney world of early intervention. And when he hit puberty, everything seemed to change in a nanosecond. And when we needed sort of help and advice the most, there was the least. And that was really when I kind of leaned on other parents for advice, for support. And I really wanted to kind of, uh, I felt that that was a very crucial age. I think that puberty is difficult for all parents, typical and atypical. So that was really, that was my entry point into advocacy was when my son entered puberty. Although that was the entry point and I've really evolved in many directions since first writing and speaking and advocating and being a resource for other parents. Now, making sure that you have input from autistic people seems to be an important aspect of the Jewish Autism Network, as there are autistic people who are on your board and who actively you solicit input from them in creating your content and programming. So in what ways do you feel like the autistic people that have been a part of your organization have had an impact on maybe changes in your content and programming? I think initially when I wanted to kind of become involved in autism advocacy, and it's really been, like I said, it's been an, an evolution and I've since become more aware and comfortable about my own neurodivergence. I was diagnosed late in life with ADHD and apparently I'm the only one that never knew this because whoever I tell, they seem to say, uh, wait a minute, nobody told you this? So I do think, firstly, there's, it is not uncommon for parents of neurodivergent children to themselves have their own experiences with the, with neurodiversity and 
very often completely unaware because I think the literacy and the education was less available in the previous generation. And I think when I first started becoming involved in advocacy, I wanted to be authentic and I didn't want to appropriate. And I did notice this tension between the parents of autistic individuals and self-advocates. I sort of saw that and I saw, and I initially, I thought I was going to become some sort of, I guess, how to describe this, like, like, you know, that trope, autism, dad or mom. And then the more I looked into it, I sort of realized, I don't think I want to be doing this. And I don't feel really comfortable walking around Target with a GoPro camera uh, pointed at my son. I don't think it's appropriate. I think it's not, it's an invasion of his liberty, of his privacy. And I sort of noticed this dynamic. And then I started to kind of evolve and really feel that the autistic community were kind of write about a lot of things like you know i sort of like you know i started this facebook group and i saw that self-advocates would get upset from time to time and then i realized wait a minute you know you're you're in a space where people are talking about you in front of you that would like make me uncomfortable so it was really it just became very obvious to me to include autistic uh, individuals and i've learned so much about it's i'm almost embarrassed and like i kind of feel like i owe an apology because to me it's so obvious now that why would uh, organizations not include autistic people in their autistic advocacy like who better to you know they talk about evidence-based <laughs> treatments well who could be more evidence-based than an autistic person so i've learned a lot about my, my son myself and really my world from the autistic community. And I think it's okay to still have some tensions because I think that is always going to be the case when there's parent and children. And no matter how you know young or old the children are, I think there is going to be... An, but then I've sort of evolved into where do I fit in to all of this? And uh, I don't want to hog the conversation, but I'd love to maybe get into where I feel like I fit in as a dad. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was really important you were talking about these Facebook groups because I think as an autistic person, it really minimizes, uh, you know, it really minimizes us when you're not listening to us and, you know, like honoring what we have to say. So I'm, I'm curious about when you've kind of like how you just shared that with with me and, and all of our listeners, when you've shared that with other parents, that kind of message What's been kind of that feedback? Like, have you been able to maybe change a few minds and hearts in the process? Or have you gotten a lot of, like, pushback? No, I, th I think it's, it's an evolution for parents. Now, I think when parents come into this, they're getting advice from experts, quote, unquote. And very often, some of those experts are, I'm not saying solely motivated, but there are funding streams for the experts. So I think that parents are pushed in directions uh, that is billable. And I will say there's a lot of time spent amongst self-advocates and families, you know, arguing about therapies. But I've I'm kind of come to the conclusion, it doesn't really matter what we say, what matters is what's billable. 
And I think that's an area where I think that families and self-advocates must be at those tables of what, you know, what is billable and that kind of higher level of decision making. But I think parents are sort of, uh, yeah, are open, are open to change. And very often parents, I mean, look, we all want the same thing. We want our, our children, young and old, to be happy and to have the happiness that comes from communication and the happiness that comes from from independence. And I think where the tensions can come in is that for my son, for him to have the happiness that comes from independence and communication, this kind of third party layer of services and supports. So I think where I come into this, and I think this is what parents are realizing, is that it is our job, you know, we are not, we may have our own neurodivergence, we may in some instances be autistic, but in many cases we're not. So to I think it's we have to be careful not to appropriate that. But I do think it's normal that parents, any parents, like to take pictures of their kids and show off about their kids. So, you know, that that's not necessarily just sort of, a, you know, an autism question. But I think that that we have to have that sensitivity. And I think parents need to stop, the, you know, focusing more on the, um, the autism mom and dad and more about advocacy regarding this third party layer of services and supports that it is our job to make sure others are doing their job. One of your experiences as a rabbi is that you've been a college campus rabbi for, I guess, close to 20 years now, which I was really excited to learn about that in researching you because I remember being on a college campus and going to Jewish services. And for me, everyone is different, but for me, like the social aspect of it, I went a few times, but the social aspect just kind of caused a little bit too much anxiety for me. So I'm wondering whether social or otherwise, what would you say are some important things rabbis can do on college campuses to support artistic people and having better experiences in these environments and maybe returning more frequently? That's a great question. You know, if you would have asked me about being a rabbi on a college campus a month ago, I would have given you very different. <laughs> True. It's, True. It's, it's been a month, Doug, it's been a month. Yeah. Um, but I will definitely say that autistic students are, are very often not given services and support that is evidence-based according to uh, atypical evidence-based, meaning that very often I think autistic students on campus are expected to camouflage, to mask, to fit in, to be like everyone else as opposed to just be like themselves. And I think the first thing that rabbis can do is to just ask and include autistic people in, in their planning, in their advocacy, have a, just like, you know, Hillel's and Chabad's have a student board, to have like a board member that is a inclusion board, but actual, not, not inclusion that is coming from our lens, but coming from an individual self-advocate lens, not speaking on behalf of somebody, but having somebody speak on behalf of themselves. And that could really mean, I mean, I look back now, there have been events that I've run 
that I felt uncomfortable, that I've been anxiety, you know, and I'm running the thing, you know, where there's just so many people in a room and there's so much noise and there's just so much going on in so many directions that I look back now, it was too much for me. So I think just to include, you know, autistic people and to make some, you know, very simple, I think accommodations, a quiet room, beanbags, stimming, you know, to have some tools and space for those that need to regulate. And I think just also to normalize the fact that, you know, like I believe neurodiversity affects about 20% of the population. So sometimes these things are spoken about in very sort of like as if it's a sensitive taboo topic. And that's something I find really annoying and almost ableist. It's not sensitive. It's 20% of the population is has a, a ADHD, a dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism. These things are not uncommon. In fact, they're way more common than we may uh, be led to believe. So to have a conversation that's just more normal, these are not special needs. These are like basic needs. And sometimes I feel like in the Jewish community, everyone I know is wearing Lycra, doing a five-mile run or a triathlon in the name of awareness when everyone's aware already like you know like it's kind of like awareness has become almost ableist and we need to talk just more just practical and just to have those kind of practical conversations you wrote what i think is a really important article in which you talked about for a long time about your son's autism and what was going at uh, and not talking about what was going on at home due to wanting to keep your son's privacy as well as uh you know your image as kind of a happy-go-lucky rabbi online, and in the and in your community. So I'm wondering, you know, since you started to share a little bit more about your experience and how that impacted uh, you, as well as possibly how has that impacted your relationship with your son? You know, I like to tell people, you know, he's he's special, but he's not that special, and he can actually be really annoying. I like to say that in terms of. Just because he's a teenager, like any other teenager, I think writing the article for me, it was just, and I'm well aware that I was, you know, writing it from my lens and not on his behalf. I'm writing it from my perspective. I just felt I wanted to put the whole story out and almost like puke it out because I just felt that we, what we had experienced when he entered puberty and the fact that the systems of care don't have any, it's something that I'm very passionate about. I'll get to the question. I go on tangents. I got it. But something I, what I'm very passionate about is comorbidity and autism. That, that if, you know, a person is autistic, they are, you know, 80% more likely to have anxiety. The mental health comorbidity is four to five times higher, yet what you're, the treatment you're going to get in a mental health facility is evidence-based on a typical person. So you're suddenly put in an environment that is that has the evidence is not for an autistic individual. So you could be put in an environment that is not appropriate, in fact, is traumatizing. And what I've learned from self-advocates is very often a meltdown is coming from an unmet need. So instead of talking about those unmet needs, we talk about, and this is not the fault of parents, they don't know any better, and they're suddenly faced with an expert, 
quote unquote, who is heavily medicated. And I'm not really, I don't want to get into, I'm not a doctor, but for me, like to not talk about unmet needs and only talk about medication and medicating is, I look back now is a little dangerous. I'm able more now to look at the needs of my son. Are they being met? Is he happy? Is he communicating? I would say that the journey has made us much closer and we just kind of, and he certainly, even though he's not as verbal, he certainly communicates in his own way. And it's about me understanding, you know, what he's trying to communicate. And I would say we're close. He's a lot of fun. Like uh, we're both chillers. So, you know, (laughs) it's like, it's fun. It's a journey. So something you were talking about a little bit earlier that I wanted to kind of circle back to is that it can be really triggering for us as autistic people to see parents post certain things about their children online. So sometimes it could be about meltdowns or other experiences from their from their kids. How have you went about deciding what you do or don't share about your son's experiences, whether it's on social media, whether it's with your congregation? How do you go about making those uh, choices? You know, it's a great question. On the one hand, I don't want to single him out as being any more special than any of my kids. But on the other hand, I do feel like when it comes to, to Ellie that he's so lovable and that so many, you know, being a community leader, that many, I guess, over the years, many people have become sort of, I guess, have an extra love for Ellie and and have been part of his journey. So on the other hand, I know there are people that want to know, and also because he doesn't live at home now. He lives in a residential school in Boston. So I know there are others that are sort of invested in him. And I try and sort of post judicious, like not, you know, and no more than my other kids. I sometimes think to myself, like to put in my Insta story, because I know that when people like see he's doing great, like it just like they feel very invested in his journey. So I'm just careful. Also, I don't want to, like, I don't like to show him in an ableist light that he is just, you know, if he's doing something that that anyone else would do, that that is any more or less special. So I'm not looking to get into photographs that are more, I guess, what you would term inspiration porn. So I kind of stay with that can feel a little icky. And that's been a journey. That's things that I've sort of evolved on just learning more and being around the community and I've and I make mistakes all the time so it's it's a matter of learning and people can it's a lesson and I think mistakes are okay you know if you know you've made a mistake you apologize and then you you know you try to do better and I think that's I think that's an important part of that process yeah that's one thing I I do appreciate from the autistic community that, that that is a bluntness and an honestness, and also like a move on to the next thingness, you know? So like, it's uh, it's refreshing. In your background, I see a little uh, figure of Spider-Man. I want to talk to you a little bit about Spider-Man and, and other things. In addition to being a rabbi, you're also an author. And I'm very interested in one of your books uh, titled How Jewish History, Culture, and Values Shape the Comic Books Superhero. Especially since, and maybe this is the most, this is such an autistic thing to do. I started from the beginning of Marvel and I'm watching it in chronological order to the end. 
<laughs> so I think I'm in about 2017 or 2018 now. I'm wondering in what ways do you see Jewish history and culture related to characters like the Hulk, Captain America, or Spider-Man? In what way do I see Jewish... I'm, I'm putting on my Insta story, by the way. Okay. Do you mind? Not at all. All right. So in what ways do I see the superhero... Like Jewish values and superheroes? Yes. I don't know how long you've got for this podcast, but uh, I, that, that is, the, you know... The, <laughs> I'm, I'm about to geek out. So I, in what way, I guess in every way. I, it was really, you know, I wrote the book because I had read this book, Cavalier and Clay, which won the Pulitzer Prize by Michael Chibon. Chibon, I'm not trying to pronounce his name, is the author. And it's a fictional story about Jewish comic book creators in the 40s, late 30s, and how their creations almost mirrored their own lives as immigrant Jews with double identities. And it was like a metaphor for the immigrant experience. And it was like a fascinating book and I was like wow I wonder what the real comic book creators were like and I started to go into archives and look at history books and I was shocked that not just some of them were Jewish but pretty much all of them were Jewish and that this was a uniquely Jewish art form where their creations kind of mirrored themselves that their their creators had these double identities one at home one at work created characters I guess you mentioned Spider-Man, so Stan Lee, born Stanley Lieber, created, uh, he wrote Spider-Man and many of the, the Marvel superheroes. So for me, it was just, I kind of went down the rabbit hole. And also I think there was like a crypto Jewish connection that I grew up in England and there was a lot of anti-Semitism and I was kind of like this nebbish, nerdy kid and I sort of used humor as a way to kind of placate the bullies which is something that like Spider-Man does. He's got that kind of a neurotic, nebbish exterior. For me, it's become, and that book, I mean, I've written other things, but that book really took off. Literally just this past Sunday that they had, this is called Juice, the Jewish comic experience where in Manhattan at the Jewish Center for History, they had the world's first like Jewish comic book experience. And it was like, taken really like seriously and suddenly like i'm on this panel and they're asking questions like you just asked and i was like thinking to myself wow like all these like 20 years ago i had all these like sort of interesting little thoughts and musings and now it's become like part of american culture and canon and history it's really amazing and i think just the notion of and also ironically i do think that the superhero lends itself to the autistic experience, the fact that superheroes very often have to camouflage and mask and sort of hide their essential real selves to kind of fit in and be accepted. That I, you know, there's clearly so, and I think just that idea of the outsider insider, it translates not just to autism, but really to anyone that feels marginalized. So I think that's why the Marvel movies, because so many of us can feel marginalized, like, you know, we don't fit in. And I think the superheroes speak to that in everyone. So I think they just kind of tapped into something that maybe they weren't even aware of, the, you know, the, how deep it really goes. But I'm glad you asked me about that. It's the gift that keeps giving it. People just keep talking about it. So, yeah. 
Do you have a favorite Marvel character or show? Yeah, or you, movie? you actually, you actually, you went, you, yeah, the one you mentioned was Spider Man. I think Spidey was like a teenage superhero, and he yeah. kind of had that like very nebbish, neurotic side to him. Uh, yet, of all the superheroes, I think he's the most costumed. Like he's trying to almost mm. hide the most. And then I think that Spider Man's kind of a metaphor for puberty and that uncomfortable feeling of, uh, and I think that's something that transition from youth to adult, which is something I'm still, even though I'm like in my late forties, I still feel like I'm uh, straddling. I think Spider Man was really the one that resonated. Also, I like got bullied in school, and there was anti-Semitism on the bus. So, like, just the fact that. And then I'd go to the synagogue and the rabbi would tell me like, well, light unto the nation and the chosen people. And then I'd get on the bus and someone would give me a wedgie. So like, I kind of felt like Spider-Man has like the greatest line in all comic book history with great power comes great responsibility. Stanley once asked me, is that in the Torah? I didn't have the heart to tell him no. So I told him it's in the Midrash. I, I don't <laughs> think it is. But uh, yeah, I love Spider-Man. Spidey's the best. You don't want to disappoint Stan Lee, I guess. No, no, no. <laughs> and uh, lastly, how can our listeners learn about uh, you a little bit more and the Jewish Autism Network beyond this conversation? You know, the Jewish Autism Network is, I'm sort of honored when you ask me, but at the same, it's still evolving. It's really like, it's becoming my own sort of advocacy. I think very much something that I've become passionate about is the comorbidity and the need for different systems to understand because autism is not just a doesn't it, it is it's holistic so it affects all systems just like any human is going to interact with any system of care and system of government so too autism is not just the purview of what in new york is called opwdd office of people with developmental disability no it's it is a condition that will affect every single system that's something that i'm very passionate about and i guess we have a website jewishautismnetwork.org we're on instagram jewish autism network and the reason by the way i went with the jewish because i felt that i could create a change and a conversation in my own community because that's kind of where my rolodex is i just want to say that i'm an advocate and ally to everybody and right now, I think uh, Jews need all the allies we can get. So everybody of any race, religion, color, or creed, feel free to reach out. And I'm also on Instagram, Rabbi Simcha, R-A-B-B-I-S-I-M-C-H-A. And I'm kind of like, a, I like if you want to know what I'm having for breakfast, uh, you can look at my Instagram. And, uh, you know, I post quite a lot of nonsense because it makes me happy. Well, Rabbi, I really appreciate the conversation. You know, throughout my life, going to temples and things like that have... I knew before I was autistic, like, something is not right here. And then as I've gotten older and understood that, so I really love that you're trying to bring this conversation to the Jewish community. And I wish you were closer so you could be my rabbi. Oh, my God. You made my day. Anytime. <laughs> Next time you're in New York, we'll connect. We'll okay. Connect. Thank you. Thanks so much to Rabbi Weinstein for the conversation. To learn more about Rabbi Weinstein and the Jewish Autism Network, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode.
Here at Autism Personal Coach, our clients are the experts, our coaches are the guides. The majority of supports for autistics are not helpful. They try to fix us, not support us. That's why many are confused when we say our clients are the experts, experts of their lived experience. Our clients are the experts for what has worked for them and about the things that they need and want in their lives. Our coaches first listen to our clients, then ask thoughtful questions, offer resources, and strategize with our clients so they can get what they need to thrive. Would you want a guide in your life to coach you to get you the things you desire? If so, then visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.